Hi, it's been a while, but welcome back to Director's Notes and the return of our Filmmaker Interview podcasts. Even though things have been a little quiet here since our last episode, over on directorsnotes.com, we've been keeping busy as ever, speaking to some of the world's most talented filmmakers each and every day. But right now, here on the podcast, as we've done for as long as Director's Notes has been around, we kick off our season of interviews recorded at the 2019 edition of the London Film Festival with my chat with director Harry Sammer, who talks to me about heading back to a Mexico city of 1986 and the character-defining post-punk days of sexual liberty, outsider art and drugs, which helped shape him in his semi-autobiographical feature, This Is Not Berlin. So I'm here at the London Film Festival with director Harry Sammer. Welcome to Director's Notes. Thank you so much. I believe that film and music have always been an integral part of your life. So how is it that, I suppose, you made the choice between film and music and how did you then get into film directing? Uh, so the thing is, I always wanted to be a, a film director, since I can remember. And I lived in Paris for a while in the 80s and I tried to study film there. And it was just very difficult to get into a film school over there. I didn't have the money. And then I came back to Mexico and it was also pretty difficult. And so I had done music for a while and actually in Paris I started restarting music through clarinet. So when I came back to Mexico and I couldn't go into film school, I decided to start a career in music. And then I went to rock music and just uh, became very... Uh, whatever you see in This Is Not Berlin started happening in my life. I ended up in rehab and after rehab I decided to uh, Things just changed and I uh, finally I, I ended up in film school, which was very fortunate for me. And I just stopped doing music altogether. This is Not Berlin really spoke to me as I'm a black guy who's into alternative music. And it was very much a finding of my tribe when I found this music and just spoke to me. And to me, that is the emotion I got from this film. So, I mean, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, could you tell us a little bit about the film and how it relates to your life? Well, this is a very autobiographical film, in fact. I grew up in the outskirts of Mexico City, in the suburbs, in a place very similar to what you see at the beginning of This Is Not Berlin. Very conservative, very middle class, sort of like the um, American dream in Mexico, sort of uh, suburb, if you will, without any culture. And I find a lot of the families that were growing up there were uh, kind of victims of uh, they were the divorced generation, if you will. My mom, for instance, was really uh, brought up to be a wife, and when that didn't happen, she had a very difficult time finding out what she was there for. And there wasn't a lot of talking between uh, fathers and their kids and so forth. So we, we grew up in a very uh, particular community. There was a lot of violence, a lot of gangs and fighting, and that sort of masculinity, I was surrounded by that and I didn't really fit into that community. So the film tells the story of two kids that are growing up in, in, in a place like that, and they end up going to Mexico City to this club that is perhaps the only club in Mexico City that houses gay people, but also uh, you know, musicians and artists and painters and poets. And because we are talking about a Mexico City in the 80s that was completely dominated by a dictatorship, so young people were completely stolen of the public space. So that was the real underground, I find. So these kids get to this 
uh, club and they meet this group of uh, LGBTQ artists that are doing very radical work and inspired by what, what's going on in New York City or Berlin or London and they start living this underground culture and that changes them forever. Given the personal nature, the deeply personal nature of this film, how was the process of writing, because there's um, you've got two co-writers yes. in the film? So, yeah, why is it that you felt that you needed to write this with somebody else, given the fact that it's, to all intents and purposes, your story? I think exactly because of that, I always felt that I needed, or I wanted to share this story with someone else that could, could perhaps give me an objective lens as of how to structure a film about my life, but not being a documentary. It was always intended to be a fiction that really had a dramatic structure and that actually worked for a film. So I thought that that would be a smart move. And it took a while to find the right person. I, I tried twice before and it didn't really work at all. And then I was doing some other uh, work with Max and Rodrigo and I suddenly realized they were the perfect... They, they have a, they have a, a writing room uh, and so I, I sort of uh, knew them working together. So I just, I just spoke with them and they seemed to be the right people for the job and we really got along wonderfully. What were the conversations that you had with your cinematographer to, one, I suppose, get that immediacy that I spoke about earlier, that you know, feeling that we're part of the scene and we're there and we're discovering it, but also not overplaying things and overblowing things and keeping that authenticity? I had that conversation with my DP, with the art director, and with the wardrobe person, and even with the makeup a person who I think did a great job as well. I always had the idea of making it feel as real as possible. I think the 80s are, were a very theatrical place to be and I really think that they don't need more theatricality. You know, I didn't want to make a film that seemed to be a theatrical version of the 80s or an homage to the 80s, but really the things as I, I lived them. And because I was there, I pretty much remembered or felt I've, I've I think I've since the 80s I've always carried this this feeling of pulse punk and uh, new wave sort of and all that dark inspired music and aesthetic in me and it's even been difficult to shake out of that feeling so I was very careful not to overdo it we looked at different films and we were talking and and uh, finally we we came up to films like Fish Tank or American Honey and realize that that way of, of uh, staging a scene in which it, it seemed that there was a lot of natural accidents and it occurred to me that that might be because neither the actors or maybe not even the crew from the cinema, maybe the focus puller didn't really know what was going on. And so we decided to work with a professional but not so experienced focus puller and then I, I was getting them in continuous trouble by using long lenses and uh, shooting with you know, light conditions that were a little demanding and she didn't really know what was going to happen so I wanted it to feel, had a certain docu documentary style or a thing to it so this getting them into trouble really allowed me to be very natural in the accident. What did you shoot on? Uh, I used an Alexa, yeah. Alexa Mini. And we used high-speed lenses that were made in the 80s, actually. Oh, okay. And they have a very soft thing to them. 
there's there's a moment in the film I think that you can even confuse him a little for a cook or maybe even an anamorphic lens mm -hmm. because it has that same very soft texture to them. And I think they they came beautifully cinematic for the film. This film saw you make um, I believe it's your acting debut. Yeah. Oh uh, no, I've acted. Before, You've acted before. But th this is the most important role I think I've played yeah. so far. Um, why was it important for you to be in that role? How did that character come to be? I had an uncle that inspired the musical part of my pre-teenage years. He used to live in New York City with uh, his wife. She was a very cool lady. I sort of regarded them as this cool, the image of coolness when I was like 11 or 12. He loved the Rolling Stones and I started listening to the Rolling Stones and the original King Crimson. And music from the 60s and 70s. I also saw that he was big on drinking and using other drugs, and I, I bet that was a big influence on, on a lot of stuff. There was one summer that I, I was punished for whatever reason, and they sent me to work to a uh, company of his, and my mom would, had never imagined that the people that were working, because this was a photography studio, were people that were doing everything she wanted me to be away from. So that part was influenced by a real uncle. What I really didn't have was a male figure, as someone who would help me understand my role in life at that particular time. I don't think I had that role model in my father or this uncle or anybody by, by that chance. And I was very needed of that. I was very confused and I was doing a lot of self-destructive stuff. And why did you feel that that was a role that you oh, wanted to take? Well, this might sound a little too philosophical or even metaphysical, but I think at some point time is almost a, a human invention. It's a way of trying to cope with this reality, which is not very easy to cope with. And if time doesn't really exist, then I can give that to myself as a, as a kid in a metaphorical, symbolic, and even maybe even real way through this actor staging myself when I was young and me playing. I just thought it was like very interesting uh, to play with those elements and break time and just, just, just destroy time and give that to myself. How did you go about assembling your cast and then also prepare them for the roles? Because again, I read that you kind of almost set them up to become artists themselves, That's like right. to embody the role. So yeah, what was that process and yeah, where did you find them? We made a very big casting. We used a casting uh, house, and, but also at some point we weren't finding the right people. So we started calling actors from here and there. Actually, Saviani comes from doing shows for Disney and, you know, he, he, he uh, had a lot of uh, fans that were little girls and so forth, so I, I didn't think he was going to be right for the role, but he then made a, a fantastic casting and I could immediately see in him that he had that sort of naivete, while at the same time an intrinsic pain in him that would be perfect for the role. I needed, you know, that, that sense of chi still childhood, if you will, while at the same time you could read a melancholy and a pain that were important for Carlos. And then I, I had worked with the actor that plays Nico, who was very important to me as well, Mauro Sanchez Navarro, and then Jimena is a known actress in Mexico. She's probably the, between, amongst the, the younger crowd, he, she is the most known of all. Jera had never done a film before. He came from the world of dubbing. He did a lot of dubbing for film, and, and especially Japanese anime. He's a natural, he's, he's really a very, very talented guy. So they all came from 
different. And of course, Marina I knew from theater in Mexico. She had uh, shot already Roma, but I, I didn't know what Roma was about. Nobody knew it was a very secret process. And I knew her mostly from theater, so we knew each other pretty well. And it was just very logical that she should be my mother. Then I realized that she had been uh, a mother in Roma as well, which was kind of strange, but that's what happened. Yeah, we did a very long prepping process. They took a lot of different classes from people who were willing to help us, other artists from the 80s, younger, very radical artists from this is contemporary art. It all started with Joseph Boyce and talking about all the different voices in contemporary art. And then others just sharing other passion and why they would choose to tattoo themselves in, in a gallery or, you know, just non-conventional art schemes. Was it um, difficult at all for you to convince any of the actors to take part, given, you know, the, the film is very frank in its nudity and use of drugs and sexuality? Not <clears throat> when I brought them on board. When I was actually shooting, there was a couple of moments in which, especially Sabiani was a little... Uh, we started shooting all the part from the suburbs. So all the family and the kids and the fighting and all of that. And the first time they all shot together, the artists and Carlos and everyone, I thought we needed something very radical, very strong. So we shot that performance in which they're naked in the street with the, the red letters that has become very viral because for some reason people have chosen that image as the image to represent my film. It's not something that we chose, it just happened. Somebody started doing that from Sundance and it hasn't stopped. It's a very strong image. And he, he just freaked out completely. He didn't really understand why he had to be there and why he should, you know, he, he was confused. He, he came from a different world. And we had a long conversation just before shooting. He was still very, you know, quite not understanding why he should go through that very strong scene. I explained to him why it was important for the character. And once they started, all of them were ner nervous, in fact. Then we started shooting the scene and not even the film commission knew exactly what we were going to do in the street, that we were going to have naked people. And so once we started shooting, a crowd started mounting behind us and all of that. And at the beginning, we just had ropes for them to cover themselves up between takes. And then at some point, they just some of them didn't even want the ropes anymore. It was such an empowering situation for them. I just realized, oh my God, vulnerability really can be an empowering thing if, if you use it right. And that's what the film's about, in fact. Yeah. Actually, that performance, the, the performance on the street, was Mauro's idea, uh, the actor who plays Nico. Uh -huh. Because coming from the gay community, he, he wanted to do a performance in which he could call the names that he's been called all his life and just make, make an example of the pain he suffered as a gay male, you know, growing up in, in a place like Mexico City. And then I did a little work on it so that it became very cinematic, but it's basically his, yeah. his idea. And that came from that work, you know. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was very cool. Music, I mean, it seems like a silly thing to say, but music is clearly the beating heart of this. So how much fun did you have putting that soundtrack together? Oh, I had a lot of fun. The fun stopped when I owe that money. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been able to pay it completely. I had to ask for a loan. I will be paying that loan, I guess, for a long time. But it was worth it. I, every time I see the film, 
like here in London or Sundance or Tribeca, I can't believe a film of mine has Joy Division and 10 years after and Roxy Music and all that incredible music. It's like unheard of for me. Was there anything that you really wanted that you couldn't get? Um, the Cult. Right. They didn't want to be in the film for, for creative reasons. So, but, yeah. but, I mean, I don't think the soundtrack suffers. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. No, we have incredible songs. Devo from the first album. There's a lot of... Even uh, Rita Mitsuko, which I listened to when I was living in Paris. Maybe not a lot of uh, people in Britain or the States know her, but she's a very important uh, songwriter from France. We're um, really big champions of short film on Director's Note. So when I was looking through your body of work, it was heartening to see that you seem to mix shorts with features, as opposed to you know, a lot of filmmakers, they'll start with shorts and then they kind of abandon them when they go to features. And I just wondered why that's something that's important to you or something that you're interested in doing? That's a very good question. Um, well, I did shorts in film school. Then I shot my first feature, which is not a feature that I feel very comfortable with. It was a very weird, strong, emotionally I wouldn't even say devastating experience, I was not prepared for it. So I stopped, I quit the idea of doing another feature for a couple of years. And my way of reconciling with film was through shorts. So I started shooting some shorts that I experimented with different tones and different uh, ways of working with actors. And I did very well with those shorts. And since then, I don't know, for some reason or another, I never stopped making shorts. I think it's a very generous format. I think you can experiment a lot of different things without the compromise of all this machinery that has to be behind, even the simplest feature, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it gives you a lot of freedom to, to do a lot of experimentation. And I think that's great. Does your recent move to LA mean that you're thinking of an English language feature production. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, definitely. I've been offered some work over there. Mm -hmm. There is one in particular that I feel is moving really fast and it's uh, very, very powerful. This is not of my writing this time, but it's such an, an incredible personal piece of work for the writer that it immediately felt for me logical to shoot such a dramatic personal piece of work. And I'm getting the feeling this might uh, be happening pretty soon, so hopefully it will. Cool, fingers crossed for that. Is there any way that I should be sending our audience to stay up to date with your work so that yeah, when something is announced they can find out? Oh, yeah. Well, so I have all the social media. I normally have Harisama, which is H-A-R-I-S-A-M-A. -A -A. Uh, Twitter is Harisama1000 with a number. Mm -hmm. And then I'm in Facebook, I'm Harisama. And I have a website which is uh, Hari, I think it's Hari.tv. Yeah, I'll be there. Well, I'll make sure I link out to that. Hari, thank you so much. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's a fantastic film which I got to relive my, my youth without oh, hangovers. I'm so happy. Man. So thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our interview with Harry, and as this is but the first of seven interviews we recorded during the festival, may I suggest you make life easier for yourself by subscribing in your podcast app of choice. While you're there, feel free to let us know what you thought of the show by leaving a comment. I'll be back next week with 19-year-old director Philip Humans, whose debut feature, Burning Kane, took Tribeca by storm and arrives on Netflix on the 6th of November. Speak to you soon.